Chapter thirty five of Agincourt, a romance by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The disappointment. Months had passed. The clang of trumpets and timbrels had sounded beneath the walls of Paris from morning till well nigh vespers, and the clear blue country sky was glowing with the last rays of the sun before he set. But still the redoubted chivalry of Burgundy with glittering arms and royal pageantry, stood upon the frosty ground before the gates, the towers of which were crowded with armed men who dared not issue forth to meet their enemies in the field, less because they doubted their own strength, for they were treble at least in number, than because they knew that, within that city, the popular heart beat high to take part with the bold Duke John, the people's friend. Faults he had many, Crimes of a dark dye he had committed. The blood of the Duke of Orléans was fresh upon his hand. But his princely generosity, his daring courage, and more than all, his love of the commons, a body grown everywhere already into terrible importance, wiped out all stains in the eyes of the citizens of Paris, and they longed to build up once more the fabric of his power on the ruin of those proud nobles who, still in their attachment to pure feudal institutions, looked upon the craftsman and the merchant as little better than half-emancipated serfs. Long ere this period, the power of the middle classes had grown into an engine which might be guided, but could not be resisted without danger. In England, its influence had first been recognised by the great de Montfort, who had wisely attempted to direct its young energies in a just and beneficial course, for which the land we live in, nay, perhaps the world, owes him still a deep debt of gratitude. Influenced by the character of the nation, its progress in this country was marked by slow but steady increase of strength, and it went on gaining fresh vigour, more from the natural result of contests between the various institutions which it was destined to supersede, than from its own efforts to extend its fear. Rebellious nobles looked to it for aid. Kings courted its support. Usurpers submitted more or less their claims to its approval, and from each and all it obtained concessions. Seldom meeting any severe check, till in long after years a fatal effort was made to raise an embankment against it, when it burst in a deluge over every obstacle, during the early period of our history, it diffused itself calmly, more like the quiet overflowing of the fertilising rill than the rush and destructive outbreak of a pent-up torrent. But in France such was not the case, and for ages the struggle to resist it went on, while, partaking of the fierce but desultory and ungoverned activity of the people, it sometimes burst forth, sometimes was driven back, till at length its hour came and it swept all before it, washing away the seeds of good and evil alike, and leaving behind a new soil for the plough, difficult to labour, and fertile of thorns as well as verdure. In these middle ages of which I write, few were wise enough to see the existence and comprehend the inevitable course of the great latent principle which was destined to take the place of every other, the fact, the truth, that all power is from the people, and that wisdom is the helm which must guide it, was a discovery of after times, and was, moreover, so repugnant to the spirit of the feudal system, 
that strange but great ideal, that in the land where feudal institutions were most perfect, the men who owed them all never dreamed that they could be swept away by the seemingly weak and homely influences which they were accustomed to use at their will. Even as our ancestors, not many years ago, little imagined that the vapour which rose from the simmering kettle of the peasant or the mechanic would one day waft navies through the ocean and reduce space to nothing. If there were any in that land of France who, without a foresight of what was to be, merely owned the existence of a great popular power, it was but to use it for their own purposes, ever prepared to check it at the moment it had served their object. Some, indeed, in habits of mind and disposition, were of a character to win its aid by demeanour and conduct, and such was pre-eminently John the Bold. Strange, too, to say that very chivalrous spirit which characterised so many of his actions, won to his side a great body of the nobles without alienating the middle and the lower classes. But it was that he was more the knight than the feudal baron, more the sovereign than the great lord. It must never be forgotten in viewing the history of those times that the original object of the institution of chivalry was to correct the evils of the feudal system, to strike the rod from the hand of the oppressor, to defend the defenceless, and to right the wronged, and had chivalry remained in its purity, it might have averted long the downfall of the system with which it was linked. The people loved the true knight as much as they hated the feudal lord, and long after the decay of the order, even the affectation of its higher qualities both won regard from the lower classes, and excited the admiration of all those above them who retained any sparks of the spirit which once animated it. Thus the Duke of Burgundy, though surrounded by many of the highest in the land, and possessed of their affection in an extraordinary degree, was popular with the trader in his shop, and the peasant in his cot. Town after town had opened its gates to him as he advanced, and now he stood before the gates of Paris, trusting to the citizens to rise and give him admission. But the love with which he was regarded by the people was as well known to others as to himself and all chance of a demonstration in his favour had been guarded against with the most scrupulous care. The Dauphin, Duke of Aquitaine, whether willingly or unwillingly it is difficult to say, marched through the streets of the capital surrounded by the family of Orléans and the partisans of Armagnac, and followed by no less than eleven thousand men-at-arms, exhorting the populace in every quarter by the voice of a herald to remain tranquil and resist the suggestions of the agents of the Burgundian faction. And thus, says one of the historians of the day, they provided so well for the guard of the town that no inconvenience occurred. The walls and gates were covered with soldiery. The heralds and messengers of the duke were not suffered to approach, though their words were peaceful, and some of the Burgundian nobles who ventured too near, in order to speak with those whom they thought personally friendly, were driven back by arrows and quarrels. Even the kings of arms were threatened with death if they approached within bowshot, and though one was found bold enough to fix the letters of which he was the bearer, on a lance before the gate of St. Anthony, and others contrived to obtain secret admission into the town to distribute the duke's proclamation amongst the people, and even affix copies to the gates of the churches and palaces, so strict was watch kept upon the citizens that a rising was impossible. Disappointed and angry, but with apparent scorn, 
the duke who had not sufficient forces to render an attack upon the wall successful even if it had been politic to make it withdrew to saint denis at nightfall and the menacing array disappeared from before paris like a pageant that had passed away the leaders of the troops of burgundy separated from those of flanders and artois took up their abode where they had been quartered in the morning at the hostel called the lance nearly opposite to the abbey and while the duke remained for several hours closeted with some of his oldest counsellors the lord of croy drew richard of woodville apart from the rest and whispered that he wished to speak with him alone in his chamber the young knight followed him at once for the intimacy which had arisen between them at lille and on the road to ghent had ripened into friendship during their long expedition into burgundy and without preface the noble burgundian exclaimed as soon as the door was closed this will not go forward woodville the duke bold as he is will not strike a stroke against the king's capital with the king therein i see it well and with this enterprise passes away my hope of delivering my poor boy john who lies as you know a prisoner at montlery unless i can take some counsel for his aid nay my good lord replied richard with a smile doubtless you have taken counsel already and all i can say is that if i can aid you my hand is ready can you not march to montlery and deliver him the country is clear of men for every one capable of bearing arms for the enemy has been gathered into paris i have thought of it woodville replied the lord of croy but a large body moving across the country would soon call the foe forth in great numbers and moreover my lord the duke could ill spare so many men as your band and mine will carry off but i will give my land of nuremville to any one who would lead a small party to montlery and set free the boy as i have planned it ah my lord i thought your scheme was fixed said the young knight laughing at the circuitous manner in which his friend had announced his wishes let me know what it is and as i said before if i can succour your son i am ready to say truth it is the boy's own device replied the burgundian he has made a friend of the chaplain in the castle where they hold him and by this good man's hands i receive letters from him he tells me that if a small body of resolute gentlemen not well known to be of our party could enter the town and keep themselves quiet therein for one day he could find means to go forth to mass and escape under their escort i have chosen out twenty of my surest men but as it was needful that they should pass for followers of the duke of orleans i could not send any one to command them who had gained much renown in france lest he should be known thus they want a leader and where can i find one of sufficient experience and yet not likely to be recognized if you refuse me that will i not my lord replied richard of woodville but i must have the duke's leave who are the men to go with me i know most of those under your banner lamont de Lonoy, replied the burgundian vinmont de montebar whom you know well and jean roussel are amongst them then as for the duke's leave that is already gained for i spoke to him as we marched back to-night and he himself suggested that you should lead the party because you speak the french tongue well and yet your face is unknown in france a work of honour and of friendship shall never find me behind my lord replied the young knight and i will be ready to mount an hour before daylight but i must have full command my lord some of your men are turbulent so school them well to obey and in the meantime i will dispatch a letter or two for good and evil news have reached me here together the good from your fair lady i can guess 
said the Lord of Croy, for I have heard today of her father's journey back through Ghent towards England. The evil is not without remedy, I trust. No, I trust not, replied Woodville. It comes from a dear friend of mine, Sir Henry Dacre, who writes word that someone has done me harm in the king's opinion, and speaks of letters sent from his highness long ago, requiring my return, surely delivered and yet unnoticed and unanswered. Now no such letters ever reach my hand, nor can I dream who could have power to wrong me with King Henry, for the only one inclined to do so is a banished man. Three times have I remarked a stranger amongst your people since we were at Chalville, answered the Lord of Croy. Once it was at Besançon, once at Toul, and the other day again at Compiègne. His face is unknown to me, and yet he was talking gaily with your band, as if he were one of them but he stayed not long. I saw him as I passed through the court of the inn, and he was gone when I returned. "'It shall be inquired into,' replied Richard of Woodville. "'But now I must to these letters, my good lord, and to-morrow an hour ere daybreak I will be in the saddle. Pray God give us success, and that I may restore your son to your arms.' The Lord of Croy thanked him as, as such prompt kindness might well merit, and took his leave. But as soon as he was gone, Richard of Woodville leaned his head upon his hand in thought, and with a somewhat dark and gloomy brow remained in meditation for several minutes. "'What is it makes me so sad?' he asked himself. "'It cannot be this empty piece of malice from some unworthy fool, whose calumnies I can sweep away in a moment, and whose contrivances I can frustrate by a word of plain truth. The king does not believe that I would condemn his commands. In his heart he does not, I am sure.' yet I feel as if some great misfortune hung upon the wings of the coming hours. Perchance I may fall in this very enterprise, who can tell? Many a man finds his fate in some petty skirmish, who has passed through stricken fields unwounded. The lion-hearted Richard himself brought his life safe from Palestine, and a thousand glorious fields, from dangers of all kinds, sufferings and imprisonment, to lose it before the walls of a pitiful castle scarce bigger than a cottage. Well, what is to be, will be, but I must provide against any event. And calling some of his men to speak with them, he told them that he was about to be absent for three days, taking no one with him but his page. He then gave them directions in case of any mischance befalling him, either to find their way back to England, or to continue to serve with the band of the Lord of Croy but at all events, unless specially summoned by the King of England, not to quit the Duke as long as he remained in the field. This done, he turned to his letters and remained writing till a late hour of the night. End of chapter 35